Please go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now and they can help you out with that. If you don't own a Bible, now you do. Merry Christmas. That's our gift uh, to, uh, to you. I hope as you're doing your Christmas shopping, you're reading some of the, the fine print, you know, on the back or in the instructions of the gift uh, when you unwrap it. You know, the exercise equipment that you purchase to hope to, you know, fulfill your New Year's resolution will pro- most likely say results may vary. And um, uh, the, the kid's toy will probably say something like some assembly required, right? So Christmas morning uh, will be a lot of excitement and then Christmas afternoon will be a lot of tedious, tedious work as you define what some assembly actually might uh, look like. Uh, batteries not included is also something we should be uh, aware of because there aren't a whole lot of places open on Christmas if you don't uh, have uh, batteries for uh, whatever the gift may be. We don't always read the fine print, do we? I mean, how many times do you subscribe for something on your phone and then you click the little thing, I agree to the terms and conditions, and by agree it meant you scrolled to the bottom. There was one internet provider that had a little bit of a fun, fun with this in the UK. They put a, a clause right there in the fine print that anyone who signed up for their, uh, for their service was also volunteering to do a thousand hours of community service over the course of the next two weeks. And they had a little bit of, of fun with it because they said that in agreeing to the terms and conditions, they were agreeing to clean local parks of animal waste, providing hugs to st- stray cats and dogs, manually relieving sewer blockages, And then I love this, painting snail shells to brighten their existence. See, you should always read uh, the fine uh, print. Uh, The Bible that you're holding in your hand right now doesn't contain any fine print. That's not really God's style. That's not really how Jesus uh, does things. Jesus doesn't make some false uh, a claim and then try to cover it up with some sort of disclaimer or asterisk or warning. Jesus is not the, the salesman who tries to win you over or sell you something that is, is not what we thought it would be. Uh, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so Jesus paints a very clear picture. He speaks the truth about what it means to follow him. And what Jesus makes very clear in John chapter 15 is that if we are going to embrace his love, then we can expect the world's hate. To embrace the love of Jesus means that we will be expecting the hatred of the world. John chapter 15, I'm going to begin at verse 18. I'm going to read down to chapter 16, verse 4. I invite you to follow along. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their laws must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus doesn't hide these kinds of details in the fine print. He makes this abundantly clear to his disciples. He wants them to know, first and foremost, jot this down. He wants, he wants his disciples to know about the hatred of the world. He wants to give them preparation for persecution. And he lays that out for them. And he lays out the connection because they are connected to him. Remember the context in John 15. He had just talked about abiding. So that the life of Jesus is being drawn from the vine. And we're the branch. And we're producing fruit. Which is the life of Jesus flowing through us. And if they hated the vine, they're going to hate the branch. Now, Some of us might take a great comfort in the fact that the, this passage begins with the word if. Maybe this is a hypothetical situation. Maybe this won't apply to every disciple or to, or to every Christian. It says if. I mean, it doesn't say when. Well, if in English and its Greek equivalent doesn't always mean to be speaking in the hypothetical. It can sometimes be an assumed condition. And that's what's being described here. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Keep reading verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, look what it says. Therefore, the world hates you. It's an assumed, the if at, at the beginning of verse 18 is clearly an assumed condition because by the time you get to verse 19, he just lays it out clearly. The, the, the hatred is not something that will one day might possibly happen in the future. No, Jesus says, no, 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 it's, it's happening right now. And Jesus, he had already told them, hey, he's going to the Father, he's going to heaven. And, and Jesus was the recipient of a whole lot of hatred and opposition. But when Jesus goes to the Father, he's preparing his disciples for persecution because Jesus is no longer going to be bearing the brunt of those things. It's going to go directly at his followers. Now some of you are thinking, well, I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced hate. I mean, hate is a, is a serious Word. I mean, I don't feel like my, my unchristian and uh, non-Christian neighbors or co-workers or friends, I don't feel like they are, like, like, they de like they despise me. I don't feel like they're uh, passionately opposed uh, to me. Well, we need to, we need to do a little bit of thinking about how we use the word hate in English and how we use the word 
love in English. You see, look at verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That word love is the word phileo, like part of the same family. Brotherly love. But if you look back at verse 17... Jesus said, these things I command you so that you will love one another. In English, it's translated love. But that love is agape love. That's like God's sovereign, powerful, sacrificial love. So here we have the word love being used. I mean, it's two different words in Greek, but only one word is being used in English. Albert Moeller just was really insightful in pointing out that the English language is, is it was quite impoverished when it comes to describing love. Different languages, different cultures have many different words for many different things. For instance, you know, the, uh, the First Nations who, who live far north, the Inuit people, they would have multiple words for snow. We would just call it snow. But they would have a specific word for different kinds of snow. In Greek, there were four words for love. And, and C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. There, there's phileo and storge and eros and, and, and agape. And so there's these specific words used to describe love. Not so, not so in English. I mean, love can mean need, it can mean want, it can mean enjoy, it can refer to sexual intimacy, it can refer to tender affection, it can refer to take pleasure in, it's something you can feel for your family, your spouse, your friends, the Toronto Raptors, granola bars, whatever it may be. You see, but... It's all the same word. So we have this big, big semantic range for the word love in English. But a very small semantic range. When we hear the word hate, we think about a passionate aversion. We think about revulsion. We think about despising whatever is being hated. If you were to look up on dictionary.com, if you were to look up the word love and the love hate and the word hate, you, there, there, there would be 28 different entries for the word love. Love can mean these 28 different things, and there would be seven for hate. We have a very narrow view of hate and a very broad view of love, but the inverse is true in Greek. You have these specific, unique words for love, and yet hate, this one word, means a whole lot of things. At the end of the day, hate can mean hate, but it can also just simply mean rejection. It can mean choosing the one over the other. And so there are people who are living in places like North Korea, who are living in places like Afghanistan or, Pan or, 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 or Pakistan, who are living in places like Somalia, where the hate is the extreme form of hate. But there are people living in our culture today, who are experiencing, it's a different form of hate. It's more like rejection. It's more like feeling on the outside. That's what Jesus is getting at in, in verse 19. He says, if you were of the world, the world would have loved you. But the world doesn't love you. The world doesn't welcome you into its family. You're not part of the phileo love of the world. He says it's, the reason why that is is because I chose you out of the world. D.A. Carson explains it in this way. He says, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. 
former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, have been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. We live in a world that's in rebellion against God. Some are more rebellious than others, and then so, so therefore some are more hateful than others towards those who would choose to follow the king, the king that the world has rejected, the king that the world is rebelling against. Jesus says, if you were of the world, in verse 19, this wouldn't be a problem. But it... If you feel in your family or you feel in your workplace or in your neighborhood or, or when you watch the news or pay attention to social media, if you feel like you don't belong in this world, it's because you don't. You belong to Jesus. He says, I've chose you out of this world. That's why we experience that tension. And at the end of verse 19, he says, therefore, the world hates you. The world rejects you. The world casts you aside, does not include you. Then Jesus levels with them in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus is saying, remember that I told you this. He, he said that to them in chapter 13, verse 16. When he was washing the disciples' feet and he said, a servant is not greater than its master. So Jesus was saying, you need to do what I do. I have humbly washed your feet. So you're to do that for one another. A servant is not greater than its master as it relates to humility in serving one another. Then he says, a servant is not greater than its master in terms of hostility that we will experience from people who don't follow Jesus. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus gives, makes it very, very clear. You will be treated the way that I was treated. But notice the flip side. Notice the encouraging side. He says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, here's the thing. When we go in, out into the world and try to spread the love of Jesus and try to talk about him and try to share him in a winsome and a kind way, when we speak the truth, yes, some people will be opposed, some people will reject us, some people will hate us, but some people will listen to us. And that when we have the privilege to represent Jesus and to speak about him, they will hear our words as though they were the very words of of Jesus that's so encouraging for us. Then if you look closely at verse 22 and verse 24, he uses the same grammatical instruction. It, it begins with if. If I had not come and spoken, in verse 24, in verse 22, then in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works, then in both those verses it says they would not be guilty. They would not be guilty. Jesus, is, when he says that they would not be guilty, he's not saying that they, they, they wouldn't be guilty of sin in a general sense. I mean, the Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, those were the words that Jesus spoke. He spoke about sin. He spoke about the need for a Savior. But the Bible often talks about how with, with privilege comes responsibility. 
And Jesus talking about the people who heard him at the time, the people who were going to uh, uh, turn him over to the Romans to be crucified. These were the people who heard the very words of God coming from the mouth of the Son of God. They were in a position of privilege to have access to that kind of revelation. And so their guilt is compounded. They have no excuse, Jesus says, for their guilt because they had such a clear revelation. They, they, they couldn't say they didn't know about their sin. They couldn't say that they didn't know that God had presented a remedy for them through Jesus Christ because of the revelation that they had received. And then right in the middle of verse 23 and verse 24, Jesus says, Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Jesus had laid this out a number of times, chapter 5, verse 23, chapter 8, verse 19, chapter 14, verse 19, this idea that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen my works, you've seen the Father's works. If you've heard my words, you've heard my Father's words. Jesus equates himself with the Father, and also here Jesus is equating himself with his disciples. This is the whole abiding principle. Jesus abides in the Father, we abide in Jesus. And what Jesus is laying out here, if you go back to verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, so the, the world hates Christians, rejects Christians. But that rejection is ultimately rooted in a rejection of Jesus. The reason why they reject us is because of Jesus. But then Jesus takes it a step further in verse 13. The, re, the reason why they reject Jesus is because they reject the Father. I said verse 13, I meant verse 23. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Then in verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It all goes back to hating Christians, hating Jesus, hating the father. But here's that similar construction. If... And then they would not have been guilty. He said, if I had not come and spoken my words, and then in verse 24 he says, if, if I had not done these works. You see, the works compounded the guilt even further. It would have been one thing for Jesus just to come and to say a bunch of stuff. I mean, he said a bunch of stuff that no one has ever said before. He claimed to be God. He didn't just come like other religious teachers to say, well, you just need to improve yourself a little more. You need to try a little harder. You need to follow the law. You need to make more sacrifices. No, Jesus says, no, this whole thing's not working. You need to be born again. Tear the whole thing down. we got to rebuild. We're not stripping it down to the studs. No, we've we got we to fill in the basement and redig it. This whole thing needs to be blown up and rebuilt. That's, that's how Jesus talks about our lives. No one ever spoke like that. But Jesus not only talks about the words in verse 22, then he talks about the works. You see, Jesus backed up what he was saying by performing all of these miracles. And, and the Pharisees didn't know what to do with it. They, they brought in the man who had been born blind. They put him on trial. They could not disprove that Jesus was the one that had healed him. And so again, their guilt was compounded because Jesus spoke the word to them and his word was authenticated by the miracles that he performed. What is it that made people hate 
Jesus. At the end of verse 24, it says, They have seen and hated both me and my Father. Jesus gives a couple of clues earlier in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, he says, The light has come into the world. We've been studying John for over a year now. We know that the light is a symbol for Jesus. Jesus uses the light to talk about himself. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things, notice this, hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is why people hated Jesus, because the way Jesus spoke, spoke into the dark areas of people's lives. Areas that people wanted to keep hidden. Actions that were sinful, words that were sinful, thoughts that were sinful. Jesus talked about these things. John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you. He's talking to his brothers in the context here. He says, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. The reason why the world hates Christians is the reason why the world hates Jesus is the reason why the world hates the Father. It's because Jesus speaks the words of the Father and we speak the words of Jesus. And Jesus shines his light into the dark areas of people's lives. That people simply don't want to hear. Linda and I have uh, four boys uh, at home, and with two of them are sitting in the front row right here. And with each boy, uh, you got to have a different strategy for waking them up in the morning. Right? Everyone's unique, and everyone has their certain preferences. And and if you don't get it right, it's going to be a rocky breakfast, you know? And so for some of them, um, the worst thing you can do is to go into their room and turn the lights on. That this, the, the, the brightness and then the covers get over and then it just, it, just makes, it just makes it worse, doesn't it? You don't, yeah, you don't need to give me feedback right now, but yeah. You're <laughs> so, so, <laughs> that's how people in the world. That's how we felt when we first heard about Jesus. It's uncomfortable. It's piercing. It bothers us. To to have that we're comfortable, we're cozy in the dark. We'd rather not think about it. And to have the light shine is, is, is offensive. You see, we we often try to turn the volume down on our conscience. Every human being on planet earth knows that they are a sinner in need of grace. Their conscience inside of them, they're made in the image of God. They know that something is not right and yet we find these ways to turn up the volume in other areas of of affirmation and excuses and rationalization and turn down the volume on the conscience. Enter Jesus and he cranks up the conscience. 
enter the spirit-filled Christian into the family or into the workplace or into the culture and the volume gets cranked up on the conscience. The light gets turned on and the world says, the volume gets turned up and the world plugs their ears. This is where the hatred, this is where, remember, it's a broad spectrum. Everywhere from from rejection to to imprisonment to, to execution. This is where it comes from. Jesus makes it clear that it's his, it's his word, it's what he says, it's what he says about sin that makes him so unpopular, that makes us so unpopular. Then in verse 25, Jesus reveals something highly ironic because these people that persecuted Jesus, they were religious people. So for him to say that they hated Jesus because they hated the Father, that would have been so offensive to them because they thought that they were serving the Father. They thought that they had biblical reasons for opposing Jesus. But Jesus actually says, no, no, the irony is that you who say you love the Bible, your hatred of me is actually fulfilling biblical prophecy. Verse 25, but the word was written in their law, the law Sometimes refers to just the first five books of the Bible. Other times it refers to the whole Old Testament. It says the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That was written by David in Psalm 35, uh, 19 and Psalm 69, verse 4. There's a lot of parallels between David's life and Jesus' life. Jesus is the son of David. He's, the, he's, from, he's a descendant that, um, of uh, David's line and it was promised that one of David's descendants would rule and reign over him. And there's a lot of parallels in their lives. Both were kings. And both experienced really irrational opposition. David had this other king named Saul who threw spears at him, who chased him around the wilderness for seven years trying to kill him. And David did nothing but try to help and love and serve Saul. There was this irrational opposition, this hatred of David for no reason. David wrote about it in Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. And Jesus, again, following the pattern of David's life, experienced the same thing. This hatred for no good reason. You see, if we're going to truly understand the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, we need to understand this principle that the world so hated God. And again, that can go anywhere from just sort of a subtle, smug rejection all the way to passionate revulsion and aversion. So this, loved ones, this is not in the fine print. This is what we have signed up for as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like for us. Then everything sort of turns in verse 26. Jesus lays out the bad news and then in verse 26 he gives the good news and it begins with this simple conjunction. Three letters in English, two letters in Greek, the word but. He says, this is how it's going to be. I don't want you to give in to to despair so I'm going to tell you but... I'm going, to change, I'm going to change the, the key here. We're, we're, we're going to make a, a sharp turn here because it seems like it's not going to go well for us. But don't worry because I'm, I'm, I'm telling you in verse 26, but when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so here's the, here's the good news. We, we, we've heard about the hatred of the world. Here, secondly, here's, here's what we need to know. The help of the Spirit. The help of the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us power for perseverance. Power for perseverance. And see, with all of this talk about opposition, we need to remember something. That every time we experience opposition as a Christian, it's actually an opportunity. When our heart starts thumping, and we know that we should say something, but we're so afraid, when we feel like we need to say something, but we can't, you need to know that chances are there is someone in the room that is dying for you to say something. We assume, because we read newspapers and watch the news and pay attention to social media, we assume that everyone in our culture is just along for the ride and agrees with everything that is being said and every policy and everything that's happening in our culture. And because of that, we assume we're afraid that if everyone's going in this direction and following Jesus is going in this direction, we're afraid to speak up. In those moments where we're most afraid to speak up, chances are there's someone dying for you to do so. Someone who's trying to piece together the logic of how our current culture is putting together things like the beginning and the end of life and marriage and sexuality and poverty and justice and and all of these kinds of things and just thinking, none of this makes sense. And this this fear, but no no one is willing to speak up. And yet the Holy Spirit prompts us and gives us the words to say. Jesus calls him the helper. Some of us say, well, I would never be able to to speak up in that kind of a situation at at work or in my my family. I, I don't know how people would respond. I don't know what I would say. Well, listen, Jesus says, but when the helper comes. Helper isn't a a great translation, you know? We we often call our kids, you know, you're my little helper, you know? Thanks for for loading the dishwasher. (laughs) That's not what the spirit is. The the Greek word is, is parakletos. Para means to come beside, like a paramedic who comes beside to give medical attention, a paramedic. It's a parakletos. A kletos is someone who has been called. The Holy Spirit is the one who was called to come beside. The really the best translation is an old English translation from the King James Bible, comforter. Don't think warm fuzzy blanket. Think about come and fort as in fortress. The Holy Spirit is the one who has come to be a fortress, to give forte strength. Yes, we are living in this world that rejects Jesus and therefore rejects us, but someone has come to give us strength. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will send to you from the Father. He says he's the spirit of truth. The spirit is what reminds us of the truth and enables us to speak the truth. 
in the midst of lies, even speaking in the, the truth in a, in a culture that says there is no absolute truth. What is truth? But the Spirit helps us know the truth, helps us proclaim the truth. And Jesus himself said the truth will set us free. Jesus himself said that he was the truth. And so it's only right that the Spirit, who's part of the Trinity, would also be equated with the truth. Notice how the Trinity is all, always working together. The Father and the Son aren't like, hey, we're going to be over here. Spirit, you got this for now. We're going to take a little break. No, the Spirit is always working the, the, the Father is always working. The Son is always working. It says in verse 26, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Sent by the Son, proceeding from the Father, and proceeding for a purpose. It says that he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness. So the Spirit is there to bear witness. And the Spirit is there to help us bear witness. That's what he's coming beside us to help us do. Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. It's the Spirit who is the witness that helps us be witnesses. Matthew 10, 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. See, it's the Spirit that, that gives us those words in those difficult times. You see, our challenge living in our culture right now is that disagreement is interpreted as discrimination. And one of the ways that we experience the hatred of the world, and again, it's nuanced. It's not the same as North Korea. It's, 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 not, the, it's not the same as Somalia. But we experience, one of the ways that we experience the hatred of the world is the world calling us hateful. That if we cannot affirm someone's decision or someone's lifestyle, then the only option is either that we're afraid, we have some sort of phobia, or that we're filled with hatred. And only by the power of the Spirit can we communicate that we love every single human being on planet Earth made in the image of God. Say amen. amen. But that does not mean that we agree with and affirm every decision of every human being. And only the Spirit of truth can empower us to speak and to bear witness. And we got to remember what the role of a witness is. In a courtroom setting, the witness has a very specific role. We are not the prosecuting attorney. And based off some, 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 some of the ways I see Christians interact over the internet, it's not just that we're acting like prosecuting attorneys, we're acting like we're judge, jury, and executioner. And we got to make sure that we're being spirit-led. we got to engage, but we got to make sure that we're being spirit-led in how we do these things. We're called to bear 
witness. Jesus says in, in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He, as, as a loving shepherd, he, he doesn't want us to be rattled. So he's, he's telling us these things. He says in verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. This is a tactic we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John. The man who had been born blind, his parents refused to come to his defense. His own parents. It says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. John 12 Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the the local place of, of Bible teaching and worship, but it was so much more than that. It was where religion and socializing and politics and economics intersected. And what was happening in the time of Jesus was because the Pharisees could no longer interact with Jesus and his followers in terms of truth. And we see this come up the most clearly when Jesus healed that man who had been born blind. Because the truth was is that he couldn't see and now he could. But all they could do, all that was left to them, because they didn't have truth, all they had was power. Power without truth is a very dangerous thing. And when you have power but don't have truth, you have to rely on social pressure and the threat of ostracization in order to maintain your power. That's what the Pharisees did. They didn't have the truth. They couldn't argue. They couldn't level with Jesus and his followers. And so they just pressured those. They pushed them out. And loved ones, what was true in Jesus' day is true in our day. There is a a refusal to engage in terms of, let's just actually talk about these issues in terms of truth. We we, we claim to be a society that that, that believes in science and, and, and rational thinking. But all of that's been thrown out the window. All, everything just stems on the internal feelings of a particular individual at any point in time. And that if anyone feels offended, then they are cast out. And so again, believing that every human being is created in the image of God. And believing that every human being needs to be treated with dignity and worth and kindness and compassion. Loved ones, what does it look like for us, filled by the Spirit, to engage in a conversation with someone about the LGBTQ plus community? What does it mean to engage with someone about the beginning of life and abortion? What does it mean for us to, to, to talk about the end of life and euthanasia? Because loved ones... We are, we are called, we are filled by the Spirit. He is there to help us and to strengthen us. And filled with love and filled with grace and filled with compassion. 
We, we need to engage with our neighbors and our friends and our family members on these things. We need to demonstrate to them with our words and with our actions that disagreement does not mean discrimination. We need to clarify what tolerance actually means. The word tolerance means that you, you disagree with the, with the issue that you are tolerating. Tolerance in today's day and age means that you have to agree with everything everyone else believes. That's not what tolerance is. We're, we're, we're told that above all else, we're supposed to respect other people's beliefs. But, you know, it goes deeper than that. We're not just supposed to respect other people's beliefs. We're supposed to respect other people. And because we respect other people, we can lovingly engage with them with regards to their beliefs. Do you see the difference there? And it's the spirit that has come to give us strength. And yes, we may be cast out of the synagogue. Yes, we, we're, we're seeing it in our culture today. How dare you open a chicken restaurant in our city? But we, we need to be filled with love and filled with the spirit and engage with our culture. He says, they'll put you out of the synagogues. And then, he, then he says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. I mean, this was, this, this was a real thing for the disciples. I mean, John's brother, James, was listening to this message from Jesus and he was beheaded by Herod. And there is. I mean, we have a narrow sort of usage of the word hate. And in Greek, there was sort of this broader usage of the word uh, hate. But we, we, need, we need to understand that even though in Greek it's very broad, it can move quite quickly. A simple rejection can, can intensify and intensify. It sure did for Jesus. Verse 3 says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And he says in verse 4, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. You see, Jesus is such a loving shepherd. He, he knows this is going to happen. And rather than compounding the pain and the confusion when it does happen... With the idea of, oh, I wasn't expecting this. No, he, he lays it out clear. There is no fine print. He says, this is how it's going to be. This is, this is what we, these are the terms and conditions. This is what we sign up for as followers of Jesus Christ. He tells us these things in advance. Warren Wearsby, the great uh, Bible teacher who went to be with the Lord this, uh, this past year says, the world system functions on the basis of conformity. As long as a person follows the fads and fashions and accepts the values of the world, he or she will get along. But the Christian refuses to be conformed to this world, Romans 12. The believer is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, and no longer wants to live the old life, Colossians 3. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, but a dark world does not want light, and a decaying world does not want salt. In other words, the believer is not just out of step, he is out of place. 
Loved ones, we can expect rejection in this world. We can expect hatred in this world. But we need to remember that we expect hatred in this world because we embrace love from Jesus. And we may not be accepted. We may feel out of place. But Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to spend time in your word to wrestle with these weighty truths. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would empower us by your spirit to be witnesses, Lord, this Christmas season and every season. Lord, every image bearer that you have created is deserving of being treated with honor, with respect deserves to be listened to, deserves to be heard, deserves to receive compassion and grace. Lord, help us to do all of those things. Help us also to be faithful witnesses of you and your grace and your gospel, that you came to a sinful world and suffered and died. Thank you that for so the world hated God is true, but also for God so loved the world is true, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray that you would strengthen us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.